And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Most of us don't make the Hall of Fame in any category. Bill Bradley's a Hall of Famer in two, both sports and politics. The former New Jersey senator and presidential candidate played a very meaningful and productive role in public life for decades. That came after a celebrated career as one of the greatest college basketball players in history, as an Olympic champion, and a key member of one of the greatest teams in NBA history, the New York Knicks of the early 70s. Throughout, Bill Bradley earned a reputation for thoughtful reflection. And now, those qualities are on display for all to see in a terrific new one-man show, Bill Bradley, Rolling Along, which you can catch on Max. I sat down with Bradley this week to talk about his film, his life, and lessons learned. Bill Bradley, it is always good to see you. Great to see you, David. I have to say, I I told you before we were rolling, speaking of rolling, that I saw your, your one-man play, now a, f- a film called Rolling Along, and I was really stunned by it. I was it's delightful and it's profound and it's moving, but it's not what you expect from a politician. And it's not what you would necessarily expect from Bill Bradley, who had a reputation to be fair as somewhat aloof as a politician. Introspection is not the thing that you associate with politicians. Right. Yeah. I hear, I hear what you're saying. What moved you to do this very, very revealing memoir? on a stage and sh- f- filled with vulnerabilities and candor. And you talk about the anguish associated with learning about a girlfriend's abortion. You talk about the dissolution of your marriage. You talk about things that are very personal. Well, that's true, David. And um, I did it because I want this, uh, my goal, my hope is that this might have a healing effect on a country that's divided. And I wanted to tell my personal story with great candor in hopes that other people would tell their stories. And the cumulative effect of all those stories is the American story that is underlined by our common humanity that is often missed in politics. And so I did it for that reason, um, as well as the fact just... It, it, the idea caught my imagination. I mean, I gave my papers to Princeton, for example, and uh, they uh, they did an oral history, and I and interviewed seventy people, and uh, I invited all seventy to a reception. Forty showed up, and uh, I stood up and told stories about each of the forty. And one of them was uh, a guy that produced seventy-two plays on Broadway, Manny Eisenberg, friend of fifty years. And afterwards, he came up to me and he said. Sounds a little bit like Hal Holbrook doing Mark Twain. You want to work something up. And that caught my imagination. I'd like to work something up. I love telling stories. And so I wrote it over the the following year. I then took it to 20 cities around the country and workshopped it, you know, reading it and gave people's responses. And uh, then COVID hit. Wasn't going to do any theaters. And uh, so I ended up uh, doing it as a film, and uh, I actually think it's better as, as as a film. Yeah, you did it in front of an audience, but 
uh, as a film. You know, the thing that struck me, my my first exposure to you, like most people of my age, was uh, not through politics, but sports. And I was just a, a, a young kid. And I don't know at what point I read a, a sense of where you are, which was this wonderful, first an essay in The New Yorker, and then a book by John McPhee, who I think that launched his career, became one of the great nonfiction writers of our time. But the thing that that book underscores was just how assiduously you prepared yourself to be a basketball player, the, 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 the uh, practice and the, the exercises that you created for yourself, often alone, uh, just working, working, working to develop that sense of where you are. I guess this is more a, a sense of where I've been. But it sounds like getting ready to do this show, those same qualities were at play. No question about it. No question about it. So I I wrote it, and then I read it in 20 cities and took notes and rewrote and rewrote. So then I said, well, okay, now if I'm going to do this on uh, the, the stage, do I have to memorize it? And then, yeah, yeah, you got to memorize it. So I was walking around Central Park for a couple of months memorizing it. And then once you've memorized it, you have to keep sharp, right? You have to keep your shot sharp. And so every day at 3.30 in the rec room of the apartment building we live in in New York, I, uh, I did it. And it kind of got around. Sometimes two people showed, sometimes four people showed, sometimes 14, sometimes four, sometimes zero. I'd do it anyway. 3.30, I had to go hit my 20 shots in a row. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I mean, it's that was... It's it's really striking. So let's talk about the story that you tell here. And one of the things that that struck me was a theme that runs through is this notion of belonging and yeah. wanting wanting to belong, and that you had a, you struggled to find that. You were an only child. Yeah, you were the the son of a banker in an, in, in, a, in a in an industrial town where most of the people worked at the plate plant or whatever it was, the glass plant. Talk about that. Yeah, there's no question. Um, the, the theme is being different and not belonging. There's an element of that. Maybe that's in a lot of lives. Um, you know, when, when, we, when I had this finished, I uh, showed it to 50 people around the country and watched them watch it. Then we did a focus group of 15. And uh, the guy who did the focus group really knew what he was doing. So he said to people, uh, what is this about? And they said, it's about all of us. It's about love of the game, love of the country, forgiveness, perseverance. It's about uh, triumph, defeat, sadness, joy. It's about life. And one of the themes of my life was that I didn't feel that I belonged. Where I, where I grew up, my father was the local banker. I was the banker's son. All of my classmates were factory worker sons in a plate glass factory. And then I got to Princeton. I was an evangelical Christian in a primarily secular, very secular university. And uh, again, I didn't feel like I belonged. I felt different. And it was only when I got with the Knicks and we put the team together, and the team was put together, uh, that gelled, that I felt I belonged. And I felt, well, I finally found my home uh, with my teammates uh, on the road and in New York. Uh, with the Knicks. And the reason I felt that was because 
you have to give up so much of yourself and you know, everybody gives it up at the same time and that's the way you become a great team. And you can't do it on your own. No one player is as great as all five. Your friend Phil Jackson always quotes this uh, uh, Native American <laughs> line that the strength of the, the, the pack is the wolf and the strength of the wolf is the pack. Right. Which is uh, very much what you're talking about. I want to talk more about that in a second, but I want to stick with your childhood and your parents. There's a point in this uh, piece, later in this piece, uh, in which you said the only time your mother complimented you was when she she was on her deathbed, and she said, "You you know, you, Bill, you've been a good boy," and you 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 note to the laughter of the audience, I was 52 years old. But there was a poignancy behind all of that. And it's one that I, you know, I kind of related to. I had a complicated relationship with my own mother who was very much uh, invested in my success. Uh, and I always felt like her affection was conditional. Conditional, yes. <laughs> conditional. Which is which is not good. You don't want to feel like love is conditional to yeah. success. But I presume that you, you said your father wanted you to be a gentleman and your mother wanted you to be a success. And neither one wanted me to be a basketball player. Yeah. Or a <laughs> yeah. I remember actually, it wasn't in this play. I remember you telling this joke about maybe when you were still active in politics about coming home in the off season to visit and every year and your father saying, when are you going to get a real job? When are you going to get a real job? And then you told him what you were being paid and he said, well, that's a, that's a real job. Not a bad job. Yeah, not a bad job. But back to your mom, is that where this drive comes from, that this sort of compulsion to succeed, to excel? Well, yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I think that was true. My father had clear standards. It was obvious what his standards were. So I was trying to live up to my father's standards. But at the same time, my mother was the uh, active parent because my father had a disability, calcified arthritis of the lower spine. I never saw him drive a car, tie his shoes, or put his yeah. jacket on. Uh, so my mother was left to do a lot of that. And, you know, she was the one that sat at the piano bench with me, uh, making sure that I practiced, you know. So there was that element. But this became locked into my personality when I was about 14. And I went to a basketball camp that was sponsored by Easy Ed McCauley, who was yeah, a great yeah. basketball player for the, the old St. Louis Hawkins. And um, he said to the assembled campers that one day, remember, if you're not practicing, somebody somewhere is practicing. And given roughly equal ability, if you two meet, he's going to win. That was a light bulb that went off in my <laughs> head. And I said, I, I'm never going to lose because I didn't put the time in. And that was the origin of my workaholism. Uh -huh. And it was easily transferred from basketball to, to school to politics to whatever, uh, to doing this show. You know, it's just the way you, you live. That's how you are. And uh, that discipline became a very fundamental part of my life. Let me ask you just one last question. I don't want to belabor this point. But was that painful that your mom never complimented you? I mean, you were you were arguably the greatest college basketball player ever. Uh, at, certainly at that moment, that was the case. Uh, the, you know, Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar came along after. He may have quibbled with you on that. But was it hurtful? Uh, no, it wasn't. Uh, it's strange because 
I didn't really pine for for compliments, right? I mean, I just took life the way it was. And what life was, you had to have discipline and you had to do well and so forth. It was only on her deathbed when she said, you've been a good boy, that it struck me. And I thought, oh, yeah, I I never heard that before. (laughs) And it was at that moment that it sunk in. It, It was not something that I was even aware of as a kid, I knew my mother was uh, you know, a disciplinarian, like her father had been before, but I, uh, I didn't, uh, I, I didn't have enough self uh, awareness growing up to say, "Well, gee, I wish I had something I didn't have." And I was very lucky. In a really in retrospect, I was very lucky, and to have the parents that I had. Did it affect the way you parented? Um, I, I tell my daughter I love her a lot. So talk about, uh, you, you mentioned your faith. That was a big part of your life when you were growing up, and you the oddity of being an evangelical Christian at Princeton. But tell me what, uh, what that meant to you. How, how did that play a role in your early life? It was an essential part of who I was. Uh, and, you know, this took place. I, I, I became evangelical when I was in high school, and I— um, it became the focus of my life. I taught Sunday school. I went to Bible study classes off campus. And, you know, I, I I proselytized. I remember, I remember when we were in the Olympics in 1964 in Tokyo. I figured we'd end up playing the Soviet Union in the finals. So the the athletes all ate in kind of common facilities, and so I got to know this Russian, the Soviet player, who was a guard. And so one day, because I was concerned for him or I, I cared about him, I went into Tokyo to a Bible store and bought a Bible translated into Russian and brought it back and gave it to him. And I said, here, this is from me to you. He kind of looked puzzled, <laughs> but that's, that's what I did in those years, you know? Yeah. And then at some point, you talked about this. You yeah. made a decision as to, yeah. and you walked away from that. Why? Uh, Billy Graham, who was a man that I respected um, and knew, asked me to speak at his crusade when I was in London. Uh, and it was at Earl's Court, 5,000 people giving a testimony I've given all over, over the country for many years. And I did, but it was, that was the last time. And I, I came to feel that God's love was more important than God's judgment. And uh, it uh, just took me away from the evangelical path to uh, a different way. And what do you make of the evangelical movement today? You know, I did a, uh, I had a great conversation here a couple of months ago with Tim Alberto, who's a wonderful, I think, one of the great journalists in our country. And he wrote, his father was an evangelical pastor. And uh, Tim wrote about this. He's a political writer. And he wrote about the sort of evolution or devolution of the evangelical church from Falwell to the current day, uh, when it has become much more political. And I'm wondering how you look at it from the vantage point of someone who once was part of the movement. Well, it's much different than uh, what I experienced. I mean, people were interested in, um, in, in, in your faith, in, in your belief, in your soul. Uh, and uh, politics was really not a, a big part of it at all. It was all religion. 
and it was deeply meaningful to me. And, you know, part of what I say in the show, which I hope we'll get to, one of, one of the lines that's repeated three times in the show is never look down on people you don't understand. And part of that in my own mind was never look down on someone who's evangelical, partly because I was and I experienced people looking down on me because I was evangelical, like the, like the, the assistant uh, 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 dean, uh, the chaplain at Princeton, who, who looked down on me because I was evangelical. So never, never do that. But, but I think that the movement has become extremely political. There's a book by, by a guy named Jeff Sherritt. Uh, called Undertow that describes the the turn in evangelicalism, and so I think that there are plenty of people out there who are evangelical, just like I was, but then there are others who have turned it into a political movement, and uh, they put things together that don't make any sense whatsoever, and you you think what, and yet they seem to believe it. You were a very sought-after high school basketball player, and you had the opportunity to go to any number of places, and you were headed to Duke, and at the last minute, you diverted to Princeton. Why? Uh, well, short answer is I wanted to be a diplomat, and you do that better at Princeton than at Duke, but that's not the real answer. The real answer is after I signed a scholarship to go to Duke, athletic scholarship, my mother was very pleased, good Methodist school, right? Uh, my father was quiet. And he said, I think you ought to take a trip to Europe. He never graduated from high school. So he sent me on a trip to Europe, and there were 13 women and me on the trip. And they couldn't understand why I was going to go to Duke when I could go to Princeton Yale. They, they didn't have any idea about basketball, right? And when I came back from that trip, I played baseball, broke my foot, and contemplated the world without basketball, as you always do when you're injured. Maybe this is it, right? And said, okay, if I don't have basketball, where do I want to go to school? I'm going to go to Princeton, not Duke. And so that was late in the game. The Princeton class convened on a Monday morning, the Duke class on a Wednesday. And uh, on Friday night, the previous Friday, I came home from a date, woke my parents up and said, look, I want to go to Princeton, not to, not to Duke. And so they made a call to an alumnus who called the, uh, uh, the uh, admission office at Princeton. And I got to Princeton around 10 p.m. on Sunday night. And uh, was in the freshman class at 8 a.m. in the morning. And by the end of your freshman year, you were probably pretty well known on that campus. And again, just uh, I'm thinking back to that period of time. I'm a bit younger than you, but I was old enough to follow basketball. And you don't talk really about this. But I wonder what it was like to get the kind of attention, to have a guy write what would become a book about you while you were still a college student and, and to get all this attention. And the reason I've been thinking about it a lot lately, Bill, is uh, I've been watching this young woman, Caitlin Clark, yeah. this player at Iowa. And I, as I was thinking about this conversation, I was thinking, she must have some sense of what it was like for you back then. I became a kind of minor celebrity in college. I, I was getting 55 letters a day, which is not uh, peanuts, but it's not overwhelming. It's certainly not uh, before social media. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, I had to come to terms with that. And that's one of the things that I did when I went to Oxford. One of the reasons I valued Oxford, because there, who could care? I mean, my tutors didn't know what basketball was, right? And uh, so it was a, 
it was a good time. There was a book I read uh, called The Image by Daniel Borston that I also thought really helpful in putting the whole thing in perspective. Yeah. Have you seen her play, by the way? Caitlin Clark, have you seen her play? She's unbelievable. She's a she? three-point shot. She could shoot it at half court. She almost did the other day. I saw one flip. I know. The, the thing about her, and that sort of reminds me of you, is the precision with which she plays, and not her shooting, but her passing. Yeah. She's a great player and passer and shooter, and she doesn't need much room to get it off. And so I think she's a tremendous player. I enjoy watching her. The, the women's game generally, to me, is an interesting game because they can't overpower each other. Yeah. And so they actually play the game the way the game's meant to be played. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, back to the show. While you were at Princeton, you uh, spent some time in Washington as an intern or a page. I was an intern in Washington in uh, the summer of 1964 and happened to be in the Senate chamber the night the 1964 Civil Rights Act passed, the one that desegregated public accommodations. In other words, those hotels and grounds that were segregated in my Missouri childhood. Yeah. That, that was an important year in that regard. Oh my gosh, I mean, a historic year, and uh, you were there. Fifteen years later, you would be there as a United States senator. What were your thoughts when you saw this momentous thing, historic thing, happening? It's actually the way I became a Democrat. I mean, my father was Republican. He was an elector for Tom Dewey in 1948, and I grew up a Republican. Therefore, when I uh, I was at Princeton. I was an intern. I was in this chamber the night the 1964 Civil Rights Act passed. And I saw the Republican nominee for president, Barry Goldwater, stand and vote against it. And at that moment, I became a Democrat. And so it was a very important year for me in many ways. Because, you know, ultimately, I think we all have to ask ourselves what we owe another human being, simply because that person is a human being. And as I looked at the sweep of history, I mean, I saw that, you know, there was a time when the elderly didn't have health care or a pension, when the Great Lakes were industrial sewers, when, uh, you know, African-Americans and women didn't have a right to vote, 
And when companies did whatever they wanted to their workers or to their customers, but political leadership changed those things. And that came through to me in a very profound way in that summer of 1964, embodied in the Civil Rights Act, where progress was made by politicians in a Senate chamber. And I think I thought to myself, well, maybe someday I can be here and I'll make the world a better place. The night that the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010. Yeah. Uh, I've told this story here before, but uh, I, I have a child with uh, chronic illness, epilepsy, and we almost went bankrupt trying to cover her expenses yeah. when I was a young reporter. And I went into my office and I wept the night that that bill passed. And it wasn't because it was a political victory. No, no. Yeah, and I went and I found President Obama and I said, I want to thank you. Uh, on behalf of all the families like mine who won't have to go through the terror that we did of, you know, weighing how we save our kids and stay solvent. And uh, and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, that's why we do the work. Yeah. And it was like the most clarifying thing anybody's ever said to me about, you know, we get so caught up in the red and blue and who's up and who's down. And yeah. it's like, that's not the important thing. The no. important thing is what you can get done for people. No, no question about that. But let me ask you about race. You know, you were there when the Civil Rights Act passed. One of the moving things that you recounted in this show of many uh, was about your teammate and a guy I watched as a kid, Dick Barnett. I learned a lot more from my black teammates than they learned from me. I'll tell you that. And Dick Barnett, who his all-black Tennessee State team won the national championship, flew back to Nashville, went right from the airport to a lunch counter sit-in downtown Nashville, where he had to have the discipline not to respond when white people spit on him for protesting a segregated restaurant. I mean, that's just one among many stories that I heard uh, from my teammates about uh, being black in America. And, you know, things move forward, thank God, but uh, it, it made a deep impression on me. Uh, or the story of uh, an African American rookie from Mississippi who says he'll never, he'll always vote because for 150 years his family was denied a right to vote. Or, or Cassie Russell was on a drive down from Ann Arbor to Detroit where we had an off day practice on the road. Uh, he was late and he was fined. And because you're always fined if you're late. And, um, and, and then we're in the practice about. 10 minutes, and he gets in a fight with a white rookie. And Willis, African-American captain, tries to break it up. And Cassie says, Uncle Tom, only later did I realize that Cassie's lateness and foul mood came from being stopped by Michigan State police on his way down from Ann Arbor and forced to light spread eagle on the hood of his car as his trunk and backseat were, uh, were searched. So, you know, there's no question that uh, through my black teammates, I saw their distrust and their uh, of of white Americans. Um, I heard the stories that they told about their lives, and I saw how far we have to go as a country before our racial reality matches our ideals. And above all, I saw how much I'll never know because I'm white. And uh, but I, I was privileged to have that experience. Where do you think we are now? We made a lot. I think we made a lot of progress. I think we we made a, we can always go further. I mean, this is an issue ultimately of the human heart. 
There are laws that can be passed and should be passed. Um, but we have a good architecture of civil rights laws now. And, you know, things, we, we, there are things that we could continue to do. But uh, I think that we've made a lot of progress. You talked about going to Oxford, the culmination of your college career. I think, do you still hold the scoring record for the NCAA? You scored 58 points in an NCAA. I remember the game. Yeah. Uh, I think you may still have the record. But then you went off to Oxford. You, you, I guess you were drafted by the Knicks. Yeah, then I went to Oxford, and I was at Oxford. And I, for my first year there, I played with an Italian meatpacking firm in the European Cup Championships. And we won the European Cup, and, uh, but I didn't, didn't play basketball. It, you sort of explained it earlier, but why did you... A lot of people would say, well, I'm at the top of my game. I'm highly regarded. I could make a lot of money. I'm going to go play basketball. What made you go to Oxford? On that trip I described to you, my father sent me on when I was in high school with 13 women. One of the places we stopped was Oxford. And it was a beautiful June afternoon. I walked in the quad of Christ Church, uh, one of the colleges, and thought to myself as I looked around, I got to find a way to get back here. And then I read about something called a Rhodes Scholarship. I applied for it and got it. And so the reality was I was headed to Oxford no matter what was going on in basketball because it had been a part of me for at least four years. Did they try to dissuade you? Did people no. try to dissuade you? No, they knew that it, it would not work, so they didn't try. And you also served in the Air Force Reserve in that period, yeah, right? Yeah, within the Air Force Reserve six years. Yeah, about six years, yeah. One thing that strikes me, and you didn't talk that much about it in this show, but the 60s were one of the most turbulent decades in our history. You were a young person in the 60s and a well-known young person. How did you navigate all of that? The war, the civil rights movement, student protests? Well, the student protests actually came the second half of 60s. The 60s, that's true, yes. Now, I was, I was at Oxford during that time and then with the Knicks. In my off-seasons as a Nick, I would do things that I thought I'd try to make the world a better place. I mean, you know, I worked in Washington in the poverty program in OEO one summer. I taught, uh, I taught reading in a street school in Harlem uh, one summer. Um, and I worked in an advertising firm one summer. And one summer I took a trip all around the world. I mean, we won the world championship in 1970. And two weeks later, I was on a trip around the world to try and learn about what was going on. Uh, and I, um, I always felt that I had an obligation to, um, you know, make the world a better place. You felt like you were responding to the call of the times in your own way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, it also got mixed up with well-knownness, you know, celebrity, which I was trying to come to terms with. And uh, so I had to do it in a way that was consistent with who I was as a human being and not simply be a uh, star attraction. Speaking of coming to terms with celebrity, when you did come to New York, and I remember that as well, because uh, I was very much uh, a Knicks fan when you arrived, you, you were highly paid. I think 150000 a year, you said in the show, which by today's standards, I think would be $1.4 which would be like entry-level pay in the NBA right now. But then it was considered a princely sum of money, and you weren't very good in, for the first year. I, I, they had me playing guard, 
I was too slow to play guard. And I had received a large contract. And um, the crowd turned on me. You know, it was, a, it was a painful experience. I mean, New, New Yorkers can be clear about their feelings. 18,000 people booing you, spitting on you, throwing coins at you, accosting you in the street with Bradley overpaid bum. I mean, nothing in politics uh, really equaled that in terms of the intensity. I've had a lot of tough town meetings where people are shouting and so forth, but not, not like that. It wasn't so personal. And uh, so I had to, I had to learn that that happens in life, and you have to find a way to cope. And I just kept working. I spent the summer working very hard on my game, and came back. And then, of course, Cassie broke his ankle and moved me to forward, which was a natural position. I got to Busher, and the team gelled. You said uh, that winning in this show, you you talk about winning the titles, and that you often were asked whether winning a seat in the United States Senate was, uh, you know, exceeded that. And you were very clear that the answer was no. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, winning a U.S. Senate seat's a great honor, but that simply means you got to work 14 hours a day for six years to prove that people were wrong, right? It doesn't compare to standing at center court with your fist raised in the air, chills going up and down your spine, knowing you are the best in the world. So, no, they were two different kinds of experiences, each valuable. Uh, and each memorable. Talk about what you learned about leadership from that experience, from being an athlete and being an athlete on those excellent teams. Well, I learned that it's important to be selfless, unselfish. You know, uh, that's one of the keys. It's important to have discipline. It's important to have imagination. The basic values that you can learn in the game. And you know, David, I must say, when I look out at the country today and see how divided we are, I think maybe we could uh, maybe we ought to think back to what made the Nick teams successful so many years ago. I mean, you know, take responsibility for yourself, respect your fellow human being, disagree with them openly, honestly, civilly, enjoy their humanity, and then, as my grandmother used to say, never look down on people you don't understand. And to me, that's what playing the game meant. It meant understanding all of those things as a part of your life and not simply as a part of the game. And I think, quite frankly, it'd be valuable for everybody to have that. I think it'd be an important way to think about how we can put things back together. I mean, you know, another reason I did this film, this show, was uh, I wanted to show that there's a common humanity out there we all share, right? Yes. And it's to get to that level uh, that is the antidote to this brittleness of this uh, blue-red, that type brittleness. Is, and, you know, I mean, I think, for example, you know, we were all taught either by a coach or by our parents that, um, you know, when you lose, you congratulate the winner. What? And whether it was in sports or, you know, Little League or whatever, you had, I, I, I think that, you know, you, ought to, you, you learn to act out of honor, not out of grievance. And you know that if you have humility and you work hard, you can achieve excellence. And if you achieve excellence, you take care of your family. And if enough Americans achieve excellence, 
the country moves forward in a dramatic way. And so all of those things flow from the experiences over a lifetime, but a lot of it came out of the basketball experience. You know, the things that you talk about, and there are things that I talk about a lot, I mean, that we've lost our sense of common humanity. And there's a reason for it, because we have a, a, a contemporary environment, a, a, a social media culture that thrives on sort of uh, not finding common hum- our common humanity, but but finding our uh, our you know our particular grievances and exploiting them, uh, and that has become very much not just how so- the profit model for uh, the social for social media, but also for politics itself. Yeah, and you know it is it is uh, very it's it's understandable that some people get tuned tuned out because of this. But the point is, you shouldn't tune out. You should reach out. I mean, democracy doesn't work unless you work at it. And somebody once said it's a lunch pail business. Writing a law is a lunch pail business. You got to know the substance. You got to know your opponent. You got to know what they want. You got to get a deal. You got to compromise. And that's the way you move your cl- your collective humanity an inch forward. And it all comes down not just to voting, which is absolutely critical, but, you know, getting involved. I mean, we can take control of our life. We don't have to sit back and just let the social media turn us further and further off. We, we assert those values that we've been taught as kids, that we believe in the country can achieve, and we go for it. And to me, that's really... An important message, particularly in this year, uh, where the whole goal in some ways is to turn people off, you know? Yeah, no, I, th- I think that is it. It, it uh, becomes a war of attrition, you know, sort of motivated by a grievance. It's, 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 if you believe in this process as I do, if you believe in democracy, uh, it's a it's dispiriting uh, it's a dispiriting time, but 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 let, let me ask you something that I just want to pick on up on something you said. You talked about how laws are made. I, I, um, you went to the Senate. You were a young guy. Uh, you probably came there, and there probably there were folks who looked at you and wondered what they were getting, uh, and whether you were there purely as a celebrity. But you were a uh, you became a very highly respected uh, member of. Uh, uh, of that body, and and you you were the driving force, or a driving force, the sponsor of one of the one of the most uh, storied pieces of legislation ever, which was the tax reform of uh, of nineteen eighty six, which involved working not just with Republicans in the Senate, but also with Ronald Reagan and the Reagan administration, and so on. And the the goal which you achieved was to lower the tax. Uh, uh, tax rates and broaden the base by eliminating a whole bunch of distortions in the tax code that favored individual interests and so on. I mean, it was it was really an admirable effort. Do you think such a thing is? I mean, we don't see that many examples of that kind of thing today. You know, when when Cory Booker went to the Senate from representing New Jersey, he asked me what he should do. I said, make five Republican friends really friends, and they'll help you at some point. They'll find a way. And so he did. And one of them was a guy named Imhoff, who was a very, 
senator from Oklahoma. From Oklahoma, yeah. As he got to know Imhoff. He knew he had an adopted child, so he had a foster care bill. He asked Imhoff to sponsor, co-sponsor. He did, and got Republicans to back him. Now, that's not the Tax Reform Act of 1986, but it illustrates that there are still ways that you could that people you relate to people as human beings, not as cardboard cutout. And uh, to me, the lesson of tax reform was, uh, you know, you have to, A, analyze the situation and decide what is the answer, okay? And then you have to try to convince people on both sides that that is the answer. That involved with me trying to do that. Sometimes it involved, I even went to the house once to play basketball with some wavering, <laughs> wavering uh, congressmen. And then you became Ross Tinkowski's guy. He was the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. You, you were his senator, right? And then you became. Then you had to win over Bob Packwood, who was a Republican, who was the chairman of the Finance Committee. So you make that happen. And you realize that you're advancing together. And that's the way you move our collective humanity forward. That's the way you get the rates down to 28%. That's the way that you, uh, uh, that's what legislation is. Legislation is about more about ears than it is mouth. And too many politicians think it's about mouth. It's about ears. You listen carefully to what the other person wants, find some way to accommodate as much as you can without giving up what you want, and then you get a law passed. And is that possible today? Well, President Biden did it with the infrastructure bill. He did it a couple of times. So is it possible? Yes, it is still possible. Are there obstacles? Yes, there are plenty of obstacles. But if you have one issue in mind, you have to be single-minded. I, <laughs> I remember, uh, you know, I talked about little else but tax reform for four years. Every speech I gave, tax reform, tax reform. You you might have even heard one or two of them. Yes, I think I did, yeah. <laughs> and I, I remember one Sunday I was home, and our daughter, who was nine years old, was in the room. And I was watching myself on a TV show that was recorded on Thursday, rebroadcast on Monday, on Sunday. And so I said, hey, stick around. Dad's going to be on TV. And she hit her little friend and said, come on, let's go. I'll just go talk about her loopholes. <laughs> That's it. Not all I talked about. But you have to be single-minded to get these things done. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. We just saw an admirable example of this uh, when uh, a Republican, a conservative Republican, uh, James Langford, um, and... uh, Chris Murphy from uh, Connecticut, who, by the way, did strike a compromise on guns, which hadn't been done for a couple of decades, 
with uh, Cornyn of Texas a couple of years ago and is, uh, I think, really a splendid senator. Uh, and uh, Kristen, uh, Kirsten Cinema, who was an independent, and they arrived after painstaking negotiations with among themselves and with the White House uh, on a bill that would have funded Ukraine and funded is Israel and 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 uh, would have done significant things to deal with the crisis at the border, and uh, the whole thing got blown up uh, by Donald Trump. Well, by Donald Trump, yeah. That is a that that you had a bunch of Republican senators, including senators like Lindsey Graham, who purports to be a strong hawk and strong on the border and so on, uh, walk away from this thing. What, what does that tell you about where we are? Uh, well, it tells me about the Republican Party doesn't think for itself anymore. It's a frightened party, and it's frightened of uh, crossing Trump. And uh, to me, that's a sad comment. And there are plenty of Republicans. I mean, look at what Lynn Cheney's just said about this. Look at what any number, you know, sometimes you have to, sometimes you have to lose in order to stand up for something. And I do not believe that Republicans would lose if they voted for this package. They're just catering to Trump. They're taking the lowest, you know, the easiest path forward, which is really, in my view, unfortunate. You know, I look at this election, and if it comes down to Biden versus Trump. And I say, well, Trump, that would be weak grievance versus competence and kindness. And to me, competence and kindness are what will move this country forward. Weakness and grievance will always get us into trouble. You served with Joe Biden. He I got did. there six years before you, but you, you obviously know him very, very well. Uh, what what are your thoughts uh, about him as you see him now? Well, I remember Joe was uh, led a delegation on the first trip I ever took to the then Soviet Union, and uh, we will tell you this one story. And we were meeting in the Kremlin with Alexei Kosygin, who was the ruler of Russia with Brezhnev at the time of the Soviet Union, and uh, this was at a time where you you with some foreign leaders, some Russians, he's going to, to the meeting and they end up talking 45 minutes, you have 10 minutes of questions. That wasn't Kosygin. He was kind of an academic or whatever. So we're going back and forth arguing. And at one point, Biden looks across the green felt table top and looks him right in the eye and says, come on, Alexei, don't shit a shitter. <laughs> and you know, that's Joe Biden, irrepressible, irrepressible. Yeah. He needs, uh, honestly, to show a little more of that now, because the the impression, you know, you say weak and grievance versus competence and kindness. But if you polled right now, what you would see is that people see Trump as a strong figure and Biden as a weak figure. Uh, and I'm moved by, uh, it was a kind of cynical, in some ways, but accurate analysis by Bill Clinton when he said strong and wrong often beats weak and right in American politics. Uh, I think this is a, an issue in this campaign because Biden has done extraordinary things. As you mentioned, you, you, you named a couple of them. 
you know, and there's also the climate bill and the things he's done on healthcare and so on. Uh, it's, you know, the things he's tried to do on child poverty, which was an issue that you carried for years and years and years. Uh, but, and you don't do that by being weak. Uh, but everything is about how you appear in front of a camera. Do you think there are things that he can do? And let me ask you a question. I mean, you, you're, you're about his age. Um, do you think age is a fair issue? Um, I think that what a president has to do, a president is he has to make decisions. He doesn't have to be a long-distance runner. He doesn't have to be a marathon runner. He has to make decisions. And Joe Biden has made excellent decisions, and I think he would make excellent decisions in his second term. I mean, he, he has done, as you point out, all the things we can make the list of all the things that he's done, whether it's infrastructure, chips, or whatever. But uh, I, I think he needs to, uh, what I would say is let Joe Biden be Joe Biden. I think that once, you know, he's managed, or once he's told you, you can make this make, you can't do that, then he loses the spontaneity that makes him who he is. And, uh, I just keep thinking, let it, you know, don't shit a shitter. <laughs> yeah. You, so you think he's been overmanaged? No, I don't think he's been overmanaged. I think that he has, he ought to just be himself. I think that's the way to go. I think his team actually has been very, very good. Uh, I think he's got one of the best teams ever. And, and uh, uh, I think that they understand, uh, um, what he likes to do and what he doesn't like to do, and they try to help him achieve his goals, and they they and he have been successful. Just returning to the show, you also talk about your own race for president, which I also remember well back in uh, 2000. Talk about the experience of running for president, and also talk, as you talk in the show, about the experience of losing a race for president. It was the only race you ever lost. Yeah. Well, it's a remarkable experience. Um, I was very lucky to have it for a year and a half, which is how long it was that I was running. And I always used to say, you go into a town meeting in Iowa or New Hampshire or someplace, and what I like to do is stitch the eyes together of the people in the town meeting. You know, you you could see one moving to another. You'd see it, whether you work, what you're saying works with one person, but doesn't work with another person, and how you how you try to get across to that room what you were, would do if you were the president of the United States. And um, it's a tremendous honor. Uh, and the country is so diverse. And people always say, yeah, human diversity. Yes, that's true. But there's also geographic diversity. I mean, for 20, uh, for a number of years, about eight years, I was the chairman of water and power in the Senate in charge of water in 20 western states. Those western states have lives that are much different than the uh, lives in New Jersey or in Missouri, where I grew up. And so understanding the rhythms of the country, that's why when I was uh, uh, in the Senate, I'd go on what I called American Journeys, right? Two days in a wheat former in, in South Dakota, two days in Cajun country, the border in El Paso, Steel Mill in Ohio. Why did I do that? I did that because I thought it would make me a better senator if I understood the country. And when you're president, 
That's your, all of this is yours. You're not going out to spend two days because you have to represent all of this diversity. And to me, that's the real, was the real thrill of thinking about how to do that. One of the challenges we have today is because of the sort of polarization of the country, we don't understand each other very well. And uh, even Democrats, friends of mine, friends of yours, well intended, but the, the message uh, the messages that are being sent to small towns and rural communities like the one in which you grew up and are not sort of respectful messages. They're sort of patronizing messages at times. And I think it hurts. the And obviously, there's a lot of antagonism coming the, the other way and sort of reestablishing the notion that we are part of this fabric uh, and that the, the, the team orientation that you spoke of so eloquently earlier it seems so important now that, that by the way it's playing on max right yes i'm going to talk about that but your publicist will be happy that you said that talk about the end of that campaign you know you had a challenge because john mccain was running on the uh republican side you guys had a famous debate up in new hampshire john mccain took a lot of independence into the republican column that you were counting on in a democratic primary, you lost by six points, and that was a pivotal moment. But besides the particulars of it, what was it like to absorb that loss? It was it was, it was tough, something you've wanted uh, for many years. Uh, it didn't happen, and it required you to uh, make a major shift. I mean, there's practical, which meant you had to think of what do you do without seeking the presidency, right? Then on a personal level, and then looking deep within yourself. And when I did, uh, you found that, uh, you know, living with uh, understanding your feelings as well as your thoughts was a really important thing. And, you know, when I look out there today, I, I say, you know, what, what, is, what do I like? Well, I mean, you know, I, I think, what I'm struck with now is that just giving kindness to people and seeking giving forgiveness and the anticipation of what each day will bring. Uh, you don't know. And, you know, I work for uh, a company in New York. I have young companies, and these young people, they struck. They say they want to change the world, and they will change the world. One little company might have a new cure to diabetes, for example, and it's exciting, right? But I had to move from thinking of myself as the as a potential president or then a politician to being something else. And so for 16 years, I've had a radio program on Sirius XM called American Voices, where I interview people about their lives. Um, and um, I've worked at Allen Company and worked with young companies. To me, that's that's a full experience. But the to get there from the defeat, you know, when the defeat occurred, I literally spent months just driving aimlessly around the roads of New Jersey and Northern California, and uh, it took a while. Yeah. I want to thank you for the causes that you fought for, for universal health care, which is a goal we're still, we're still driving toward, for uh, ending child poverty, for gun control. I mean, you were such a strong voice on that issue. And you think about the issues that we're confronting today, 
and the importance of the vision that you had back then still resonates very, very strongly today. So, well, you know, I I appreciate that, and you know, there's a difference between uh, if you're a basketball player and you win a championship, it's over, right? You won a championship, but in politics, it never ends because people are always going to get sick. Right? Or you always want your elderly parents to be have a good life, or you need a job, or and therefore it's the continuum of politics that could really be the exciting part of public service. Well, and I hope that there are a few young people listening to you now who are excited by picking up that torch. I think the most challenging and important issue we face is whether these kids, uh, these kids, these young people. Um, lean in or lean out? Reach out, don't tune out. You can shape your own future here. I mean, look at look at the hall that Trump went to speak to to hop his gold sneakers. He was yes. booked out of the hall because yeah. young people who were there knew what he was. And, they, and if you put that into politics, that means registering people to vote. That means getting them out to vote. It's a lunch pail job to be a citizen in a democracy, but it's the only thing that deserves your right to be whatever you want to be. And to me, that's what democracy is about. And we're reminded of that tragically by the death of Navalny just in the yes. last week, when he gave his life for democracy. We're not asking young people to give their lives. We're asking them to just stay involved. Redshift, yeah. vote, vote, talk to their friends. Don't let the small thing you disagree with, say, President Biden on. You're never going to agree with anybody 100% of the time. But you have to you have in balance which one is going to take the country in the right direction. I mean, do you want somebody that gives uh, Russia a green light to invade Europe? Or do you want someone who's respected by all leaders in the world because of his competence? And to me, that's one of the other choices. Well, I can just report to you that uh, having uh, worked for years at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, that I found it after my years in politics and public life and being exposed to these young people, I have hope. I have faith. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. I think there are a lot of young people out there who, who as you say, want to change the world for the better. And so even on the worst day, they give me hope. Bill Bradley, Rolling Along is a treasure. Uh, it is on Max. Uh, I urge everyone to watch it. You are terrific in telling your own story as you are in eliciting other people's stories. And uh, it's always a pleasure to be with you. David, I feel the same way. Uh, you're one of the country's treasures. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.